This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. It's always going to be somebody who's taller than you or fatter or thinner or better looking than you. If you turn everything into a handicap, then you become the handicap. I think it's just a question of dealing and playing with the cards that you've got, playing it to your best advantage and then follow your best impulses. Welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. I'm Greta Thomas. And I'm Claire Hatton. We're here to share fascinating stories and advice from innovative and pioneering women from around the world. I have to say, we're blown away by the positive feedback we've been receiving since the show's launch. Thank you so much for that. It really means a lot. To help spread the word, we're offering the chance for one listener to win a free two-hour personal coaching session with both Claire and I. That's right, Greta. And I'm really excited to get the chance to get to know and support one of our listeners. Head over to our website, don'tstopusnow.co forward slash win for all the information on how to enter. Now for this week's episode. Our guest this week is Singapore-based travel entrepreneur Sihun Yeo. Sihun is one of the humblest people you'll meet. She refutes the idea that she's an innovator and pioneer in her space. But ask anyone in the travel industry in Asia, who is the most innovative woman you know? And Sihun Yeo is nearly always the answer. Sihun's company, Web in Travel, or WIT as you'll hear her speak about soon, is a content and events company focused on online travel. Those in the know say Sihun's efforts to bring digital front and centre have been instrumental in helping the travel industry, particularly in Asia-Pacific, move more quickly in the face of disruption. In this episode, you'll hear Suhun talk about how her childhood in Penang, Malaysia, shaped her views about the importance of community, why it's a golden time for innovation in Asia right now, how she thinks about building something new and innovative, and why it's so important to accept who you are and play to your strengths. Enjoy this conversation with Sihun Yeo. Sihun, welcome to Don't Stop Us Now. Thank you. Greta and I are really excited to be having this conversation with you. You are somebody who I have known for a long time and really look up to as an entrepreneur and a real innovator and original thinker. But just for our listeners right up front... I wondered if I could just ask you to describe what you actually do. Right. So firstly, Claire, let me say thank you for this opportunity. And I'm really, really humbled. I don't really consider myself an innovator and original thinker, as you have put it. I consider myself a journalist who's turned an entrepreneur and kind of did what I did because 
I wanted to continue doing what I love, which is creating content around a subject that I love, which is travel and technology. For me, it was like a natural extension of what I wanted to do. And so, you know, when I did it, I didn't think, oh my gosh, you know, this is going to be innovative or this is going to be original. It was very natural evolution of what I wanted to do as a journalist. Yeah, and it's what well, it sounds like you've really followed your passions and your curiosity. Yes. Now, I know you said to me as the youngest of 3, you had a real independent streak in the, and you were always curious. How did your childhood really impact who you are? I think I had no choice but to be independent because as you said, you know, I I was the youngest. Mom and dad were busy eking out a living. So I was left to my own devices. My brother, he's six years older. He was the one who had to help mom and dad with the business, which was basically cooking and, and selling cookies, you know, which is why I still love cookies these days. And my sister was one year older and she was kind of roped into to also work. And I was the lucky one, you know, that I was left to play. I think maybe it's that playing, you know, that sort of led me to be very curious about things in life. Fantastic. Well, it sounds like being the youngest really worked for you. Yeah, still does. (laughs) As you were growing up, I know there's quite a story behind your dad, because you grew up in Penang, and your dad was from China. That's, That's right, isn't it? Yes, that's right. He came out when he was 13. I mean, his mother really put him on a boat to escape the famine in China at that time from Hainan Island. And so my grandmother put her eldest son, which was my father's brother, two years ahead. And, and so my uncle came to Penang two years ahead of my father. And then my father uh, was put on the boat and came out to, to Penang. So in a way, my grandmother gave up two sons to save them. So when my father, I think he was probably in his uh, early teens, he came out to Penang. And in those days, you had a lot of Chinese work by clans or they lived by clans. We were part of the Yo clan. That's our surname, Y-E-O-H. And so he landed in what is the Yo jetty. So if you go to Penang now, you know, on the harbor, you will see all these jetties. You will see the Chiu jetty, you will see the Tio jetty, and you will see the Yo jetty, which was a very, very small jetty. We were a very, very small clan. So the clan would take in the new arrivals and basically, you know, feed them, clothe them and put them to work so that they could eke out a life, you know, in a new land and at least give them some degree of familiarity within that clan. What an incredible thing that your grandmother did for your dad. As you grew up in Penang with Yao clan, how did that impact your childhood? I think firstly, you know, my grandmother, it was no choice, right? I mean, so she had no choice but to do it, to save her sons. And for my father, he had no choice but to survive. So how did that impact me growing up? You know, I wasn't really aware of that as a kid. You know, you just enjoy your life. You you enjoy your childhood. But we we grew up in a, the first house that we had was we had a lot of people in the same house. So it was a very communal thing. And I think I was very aware of this feeling of community uh, from very early days because my education basically was paid by the clan. From my early uh, years, primary school years, it was paid by the clan. They paid for my fees. They paid for my milk. <laughs> and so I think I was always aware of that. And so 
I was always aware of the importance of, of community in a child's upbringing and throughout my life, I would say. With all of this sort of legacy behind you that you, I guess you weren't really that aware of as you were growing up, what did you think you'd be when you grew up? I didn't know what I wanted to be, but I knew what I wanted to do, right? So Penang is a very small island and was very highly visited by travelers in those days. So you had a lot of hippies, you know, that would come and they would do the Nepal, Goa. Penang was on the hippie trail. So I remember growing up and seeing all these white guys walking around, long hair and looking really happy and relaxed, you know, and I thought, hmm. I, I want to be that, right? You know, just travel and, and be happy. A hippie. You know, yeah. And they would come and enjoy our beaches because Penang in those days was known for its beaches. And so they would come to our beaches and then they would get suntan and, you know, while we locals would hide from the sun, you know. And I thought this is kind of interesting, <laughs> you know, that people would do that. And so I think I wanted to be a beach bum when I grew up, but I had to find a way to finance my beach bum lifestyle. I knew I wanted to travel. And at the same time, I love writing. So my first real job was as a apprentice reporter in a local newspaper in Penang. That was when I sort of learned about, you know, writing and journalism. Fantastic. And, and it's wonderful that you picked those two passions. And, you know, even today, they are your driving force. Yes, that's right. I'm a beach bum. <laughs> well, I, I'm not so sure about that, but, but <laughs> I haven't seen you doing much beach bumming. But, you know, travel and, and writing really do seem to be right at the core of who you are. And I know that you, you went to Singapore and then you left Singapore after about a year because it was a bit too perhaps close-minded for you at the time. But it was pretty hard being a journalist. And then you moved to Hong Kong. I worked in Hong Kong for 13 years. I left Hong Kong to return to Singapore because my dad wasn't well. And I wanted to be closer. Even though Hong Kong is only four hours away from Penang, you know, it's still a distance when your parents are aging. So, so I came back to Singapore, which was the closest I could get to. And there was an opportunity to start something new with a group of friends. So so I took that opportunity and out of that first business venture, I learned about running a business. I learned about the importance of cash flow. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs say, you know, oh yeah, you know, I've always wanted to start my own business and run my own business. But when you come down to the harsh reality, it is about cash and the cash flow and paying people's salaries. You know, those those things are really, really important as an entrepreneur. So I think I, I learned all about that business world, which was really tough. How big a deal of it was it for you to leave being an employee and go ahead and join these others to start this venture? And we'd love to also hear, by the way, what the venture did. It was a big deal, I guess. Unlike my grandmother, like I had a choice, right? I could have stayed on in Hong Kong and continued with a very, very cushy corporate job. At that time, I was group editor of a group of publications and, and we'd done really amazing things in, in travel as a company. You know, we had launched events, we'd launched titles, brought new titles into Asia and all that. 
so I guess, yeah, it was a big deal, but one just does it, right? Because one feels that one needs to. So it was a big deal in terms of uprooting myself from Hong Kong and coming back to Singapore. So the company that I was involved with was a publishing company, of course, because that's my forte. And I was to be the group editor. And our mission was to launch travel titles with a difference. You know, that would be different from what I started. So in a way, I was kind of competing against what I had created, which, you know, was weird, but necessary. Difficult as well, I imagine, or not? Of course, it's difficult starting anything from new uh, and then especially competing against very established brands, which you yourself have helped create. Yeah, it's difficult, but it's fun. You know, it's fun because there's always room for something new. To me, uh, however crowded the market is, you know, if you dare to do something really different and new and you you know have enough uh, supporters and believers along the way then I think you can you can make it work and what are the questions you ask yourself in drilling down to actually get to something that is new to bring to the market I would say like, um, you know if I have a blank canvas now knowing what I know and then looking at the market today and what are the elements and what do people really need? What do my customers or my consumers really need? Then I would start from there. So it would be, you know, a blank canvas without trying to sort of look to the past and say, this is what we did. I know it's very difficult because clearly we are the sum of our experiences, but our experiences are also, you know, knowledge and wisdom, you know, not systems and processes. That's that's really interesting. Knowledge and wisdom, not just systems and processes. So I guess you must have been out of your comfort zone then as your systems and processes changed radically from being the uh, group editor of, if you like, old world uh, travel publications to then being part of trying to disrupt that with a new type of travel publication. I was lucky. I mean, believe me, I mean, my role is was group editor and I was lucky to have two business partners who were very commercially minded. So they ran the commercial side, you know, but I had to understand more intimately the pains of commercial enterprises because I was, you know, part of the founding team. So I cannot be removed anymore and say, well, I'm just an editor. I'm just an employee, right? I mean, now I've got a stake in this. And so it brought me sort of more intimately into the commercialization of, you know, journalism. And so thinking about your big picture career again, there you are. What happened? Are you still involved with that business or did you move on? And how did you get to the business that you now run with travel? Well, maybe because I'm a journalist and I am sort of fairly independent minded. I felt that the next time I do a business, it should be 100% me. Because when you have investors and when you have partners, there are many things to balance, you know, and sometimes you find yourself compromising on certain things that you may not want to compromise but you sometimes feel you have no choice because that was for the greater good so maybe I'm not a team player you know I've been thinking about that maybe I'm just not a team player but when the opportunity came to start my my own thing I basically decided I would do this 100% I would start really small it doesn't matter I would find a way to continue doing what I love and creating something that I would be proud of myself and do it with a a team of people that believed in it, not as investors or co-founders, but a team of believers. Yeah. And so here you are running your own show, but relying on a team to help you deliver that. 
it went by the sounds of it from strength to strength. Can you tell us about the journey? Okay, so let me backtrack a little bit to be fair, right? Because you know how in certain stages of your life, you start asking yourself, oh, you know, is this what I want to continue doing? And and while you're asking this question, an opportunity comes along and, and you know, it's about timing. And so Web in Travel was actually co-founded by myself and Martin Kelly, who's a journalist based in Australia, actually. And Martin and I were attending the same conferences and basically he, you know, asked me, would I be interested in partnering with him on this new event? And I think it was over a beer at the Intercontinental and we just, you know, basically say, yeah, let's, let's do it. Because we were both journalists, we both wanted to create an event that was different from any other travel tech event that was available at that time. And we wanted to approach it as journalists, where the edge is all about content and attitude. So Martin and I uh, basically, you know, launched WIT together in Singapore. And we did it for two years. And then Martin decided that he wanted to basically focus on Australia, while I wanted to sort of expand in Asia and dig our roots deeper into Asia. And so we came to sort of a very amicable parting and he continued with his business in Australia, which he's since sold. And I continued with web and travel. So I'm one of those who's very opportunistic, right? You know, I mean, although I knew that I wanted to have it 100%, but this was an opportunity to create one event. And at that time, I was actually working on other projects. So I had a lot of other work after I went freelance. So wit was just something I did on the side. So it was something that you did on the side and then it sort of blossomed into something that was much bigger and more exciting. Yeah, you know, I don't think it blossomed into something. You know, it's like after Martin and I, like we we said, okay, we're going to do our own thing. Then I had to think very carefully, right? What did I want to do with it? I can't let it be just something on the side because then it will never grow. So I had to make a choice then about, you know, how much time I would focus on it versus then I would give up all my other work, which I did, you know, I so I had to give up quite a lot of income <laughs> and consultancy projects and writing projects, you know, to say, okay, if this is something that I believe in, which I did, because I could see from the first two years how much hunger there was for something like WIT. So I basically then took the decision to focus on WIT and make it blossom. Things don't blossom on their own. I wish they did. I wish they did. (laughs) That's true. You have to sow the seeds, don't you? Yes. You have to, you know, know, till the soil and um, do the hard work. And so I had to make a very conscious decision. Do I then take this on on my own and grow it on my terms? And, you know, invest in it, which, which, yeah, which I did. And I'm glad I did. And did that feel like a big risk to you at the time? No, because I was already out freelancing. And I, in the end, I also knew that when you are a services provider, it's not very sustainable because you live contract by contract, right? You know, and you are kind of at the mercy of the organization that chooses to hire you. So I knew I wanted to create my own IP. I wanted to create my own entity. Then I wouldn't be beholden to others. That makes a lot of sense. If you could summarize your mission, why you do this, what would it be? 
the outcome of it, I hope, is really to make travel better. You know, by blending this global smarts and global knowledge and global resources with local creativity and also smarts, you know, to just sort of create this travel world that is better for all travelers. Too often, travel conferences end up with hoteliers speaking to hoteliers, airlines speaking to airlines. You know, the airlines don't dare to go to a travel agent conference because the airlines know that they will be like, you know, criticized. And then the travel agents don't like to go to an airline conference because they will hear about how they are doomed. But that's not the point, is it? You know, a point of an event is to basically scatter ideas out there so that everyone, everyone in the ecosystem can take the ideas that are relevant to their business. And an idea can actually translate from a global business to a local business because ideas are transferable. It's just the idea of how you can execute them that is different. And so that's the vision that I have with events and learning events is basically that is to blend different voices, hopefully, you know, create something that is magical and touches everybody in the room in one way or another. It's very romantic and it's very idealistic, you know, but, but I guess that's what spurs me on, you know, this sort of naive belief that people do benefit from the scattering of ideas. And I know that you've said you really are on quite a mission with the WIT conferences to change the way Asia's perceived in the travel industry, particularly. What's the issue in your mind about how Asia is actually perceived now and how it needs to change? We have so much to learn from each other, you know, within Asia. And I think the world has so much to learn from Asia as well. I guess that's been sort of my mission is look to Asia, not just as consumers, but as thinkers and innovators and thought leaders, because there's a lot of it out here. A lot of wisdom, a lot of knowledge, a lot of innovation with the blend of sort of wisdom, knowledge, and the energy and the enthusiasm of a new generation of Asians that are coming back to Asia. Yeah, I couldn't agree with you more. So it's a golden time. It is a golden time. It, re it really is. There's such incredible vibrancy across many of the markets in Asia. And as you say, there's so much to learn because there's some incredible innovators that are showing the whole of the West that there are many, many different ways to tackle things. Yeah, you know, when I speak to startups in Europe, you know, a lot of them tell me that in Europe, for example, they do find it difficult to get the industry to open to new tech or new ideas, but they find that people in Asia are more receptive to their ideas. So a lot of, I'm seeing quite a few startups in Europe now sort of launch their businesses from Asia. So there is this appetite and curiosity to, in Asia and this sort of desire to basically try new stuff. You're an angel investor yourself, aren't you? Yes. I love the word angel. I only became an angel investor because I love the notion of being an angel. I am not sure that most investors are angels, but I just love the notion of that. <laughs> well, you are an angel, Sihun. So <laughs> uh, what do you look for when you invest? People. It's the people, you know, and most of the investors would probably say that I'm doing it wrong, but it's the people. If I, if I feel like that team really is passionate and can execute well and they themselves are vested in the idea, you know, then, you know, then I'll go for it. But I'm not a big time investor, but, you know, I think just a sign of encouragement, you know, to the entrepreneurs. You've seen lots of tech startups throughout Asia. 
And if you could generalize, and and I know how much you dislike generalizing, but I'm going to ask you to do it now. Um, (laughs) What differences have you observed when you see women as part of these entrepreneurial teams? Oh, you know, people's eyes actually light up and they go, wow, a woman. Yes. You know, so I think there is definitely a growing awareness that travel needs diversity. I think there's a demand and and a need for it. What do you think the difference is that women can bring to these teams? Well, again, Claire, that's very general, right? It's down to the individual, but women can bring diversity in thought, right? I mean, I was talking to a headhunter the other day. She was asking me very tough questions like you are and making me think about what I wanted in life and all that, you know? And then she said that there's a trend now And I hate it when women become a trend because we shouldn't be a trend. We should be like essential to life. Uh, But she says there's a trend now towards big companies now wanting to hire leaders with humanity. And leaders with humanity somehow tend to be women. And she says that now she's getting so many uh, requests from multinationals for leaders who are now Let me tick the boxes, okay? Who are women, who are Asian, and who are entrepreneurs. Those are the three qualities now that a lot of multinationals are looking for for their businesses. Maybe it's a trend, you know, as I say, but it shouldn't be a trend. It should always have been the case. But life is cyclical, isn't it? So... I guess it's coming back full circle or maybe we never even started the circle. Yeah. <laughs> I think it's a it's a great time. It's a great time to celebrate diversity and and humanity and I hope this is not just a fad but a trend. So, Sihun, what's it like in you're in Singapore these days but let's say across the sort of the Asian countries that you work in regularly, how similar is the issue of a lack of women in leadership in tech and science and engineering type businesses? Actually, uh, Jane Sun, who's the CEO of C-Trip, wrote a really good article which we publish on our website called Shattering the Glass Ceiling. She says that of the, I want to get the numbers right, but of I think of the 7,000 engineers at C-Trip, like 30% are women. So China does not suffer from the similar issues. And India too is, you know, there are a lot of women in tech. So those two sort of powers, those two global markets are not similar to what's in the West. What about in the leadership positions though? Are they rising to actually have an executive role? I think in the multinationals, it's still a struggle. That's why you have companies like Accor Hotels that has set quarters for women general managers. Companies like Expedia that has actually have diversity goals in there that says, you know, how many percent of executives have to be women by a time frame. I think definitely in the corporate world, uh, there's still a lack, but I don't feel it that much in Singapore. You know, we have a lot of capable women who are running multinationals here, big companies. But in the entrepreneurial space, I would say that it's really driven by women. Maybe not so much tech, but generally entrepreneurship. If you look at Thailand, if you look at Philippines, it's very, very uh, women-driven. So... I grew up not thinking that being a woman was a handicap. I was telling Claire the story of this talk that I heard from, you know, somebody who was disabled. And she came on stage and she basically said, 
I am so lucky. Everyone has disabilities, but you can see mine. And I truly believe that all of us have disabilities, right? I mean, there's always going to be somebody who's taller than you or fatter or thinner or better looking than you. So if you turn everything into a handicap, then you become the handicap. So I think it's just a question of dealing and playing with the cards that you've got, you know, and playing it to your best advantage and then follow your best impulses. So much of that, I imagine, I know from my personal experience, comes down to mindset and the narratives we tell ourselves to build on the talk you heard. And I think that woman had no arms and no legs, and yet she could see herself as someone who could be successful, be happy, solve problems. What sort of narratives do you tell yourself in times of challenge? Oh, this too shall pass. Sometimes when you look back and then you go, God, you know, why did I get so caught up in that? Usually what I do, I tell you what, is I go for a walk with my dog. When, when I'm stuck at something, whether it's uh, writing a program or, you know, like getting rejected, you know, by a client or whatever, and I'm staring at this sort of dark tunnel, I basically just shift my position physically and go for a walk with my dog. And then I come back and everything looks different. When somebody rejects you, somebody else will accept you. So... You go for a walk with your dog. What is the narrative when you are under the pump and perhaps anxious or making a decision that feels uncomfortable? Uh, I guess it will be, can I do this? And then by habit, I will say, yeah, I can. Yeah, but it's only if it's something that's really, really important, you know, because there are some things that you should actually walk away from. There are some things you should say no to. See, when have you thought to yourself, don't stop me now? The moment when I said, don't stop me now, was when I told my boss in Hong Kong that I was quitting and I was going to return to Singapore to start my own business. And he said to me that you're nothing without our brand. And I said, well, maybe, but, you know, let's wait and see. Whoa, red rag to a bull. <laughs> Great story. Great example. That's brilliant. So, Sihun, it's been so fantastic to hear about your story and the mission that you're on to really make an impact to travel, particularly in Asia, and to make travel better. Where can people find you if they'd like to connect with you or to learn more about you? Our website is webandtravel.com. You can follow us on LinkedIn, Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Fantastic. Well, thank you so much. It's always a joy spending time with you, and we both love getting to know you even better. So thank you again, and thank you for inspiring our listeners. Thank you for the opportunity. Truly humbled. Before you go, could you benefit from a totally free two-hour coaching or personal strategy session? We're offering one listener the chance to win this rare session with Greta and I. So if you're pondering a career change or wrestling with a sticky issue at work or don't have the confidence you'd like or simply need a sounding board, then head along to our website for more info on how to enter. You can go to don'tstopusnow.co forward slash win. 
But hurry, we'll be drawing the winner on the 3rd of July. And a reminder that your ratings and reviews of this podcast are the fuel that keep us going. So please think about making this your good deed for today. It really means a lot to us. For now, see you back here soon. And here's to being a little bit more unstoppable each and every day. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50 luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.